most of you have probably seen or heard the sound of music. <clears throat> I don't know when that came out, but I was a child, Peggy. Someplace in the 60s, I assume. The sound of music, but there's a song, which I won't sing, but I'll quote part of the lyrics from. Julie Andrews is uh, swoonily singing to Captain whoever, yes, Von Trapp. And she makes a statement that is supposed to be so obvious that it's beyond contradiction. She says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. You know the line, Jess? You know, in her case, it's about uh, something good's happened, so I must have done something good in the past because nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. In the context of our study in Genesis, you can ask the question, can nothing come from nothing? Can nothing come from nothing? Where did life come from? From amoebas to man, where did life come from? How did we get here? Nothing comes from nothing. When it's said in the song, it's appeared to be non-contradictory. It's obvious. It's a, it's a truism. If nothing comes from nothing, where did life come from? Where did this earth come from? Where did we come from? Are we the product of random mutations? and chance forces operating through time, which is, as you know, what many people will tell you today. Many, perhaps most people would tell you today. Or did we spring fully formed from God's hand, which is, as you know, where Genesis lands squarely. If you read the scriptures, God leaves no doubt that all of life came from him. That is, nothing comes from nothing is normally true. But in the area of life, God brings something out of nothing, but no one less than God does so. You guys remember in the opening verses of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, the initial creation, and in those first three days, he's kind of carving up territories, he's shaping the universe, giving space, these areas in which he's going to fill up later, and in day four we saw he began by filling in space and stars. We talked about stars and starlight, the planet and the suns. We'll start on day five today, we'll be only in verses 20 through 25, We'll actually take day five and part of day six. We'll save the last part of day six uh, for later. But uh, God car has carved out those spaces. Now he begins filling them in. So in day five, he starts filling them in with life. Verse 20, God said, Let the water teem or let it swarm or multiply with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing. And let me just read that part again. God created every living and moving thing. And the living things here are, later will be called souls. Uh, typically, that we think of them as things that breathe or move air or oxygen. They're alive. God created every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. You know, last week when we looked at the stars and starlight, it was a bit of a science lesson. This will be a little less so, but I did want to give some description to what exactly it was that God made. Related to the oceans and life in the oceans, the oceans cover about 70% of the face of the earth. It's most of the earth is covered by the seas. 
the oceans hold all but about 3% of the Earth's water. You know, fresh water is a precious commodity because most of the water on the Earth is in the oceans and it's salty. Each year, these are the best numbers I could come up with, each year it's estimated that fishermen harvest over 70 million tons of seafood to feed the people of the world. 70 million tons per year. That's 140 billion pounds or 23 pounds per person per year if the earth is about 6 billion people. That's a lot of fish. When God said multiply, he really meant it. And even today, you look at these numbers, they're staggering, but that's the degree to which the oceans have been filled with life. There's an international study that is still going on today. It's supposed to conclude in the year 2010. <clears throat> this study is doing nothing but looking at various areas of the oceans of the world to see what kind of life is there. They say there's about 16,000 species of fish in the oceans of the world. And this study, just this study alone, has found a couple thousand forms of sea life that have never been discovered before. This study, just in the last 10 years, not quite done yet, has come up with 2,000 more species of life in the ocean that have never been uh, described before. This study found a type of shrimp alive, well, and wiggling that was thought to be extinct 50 million years ago. It's alive and well. This study also saw a, a single school of fish off the coast of New Jersey that the school size was estimated to be 20 million fish and the school occupied space in the water about the same size as the island of Manhattan. So God puts life in the ocean and he says multiply and there it is. You can see some of that today. The diversity of this life, too, is incredible. The smallest fish in the world is the Pitacrippus fish in India. It's about seven millimeters long. And you can go up to the blue whale, 110 feet long and 190 tons. So God makes all these kinds of life from the smallest to the biggest, diverse in characteristics, you name it, and says multiply. And lo and behold, they do. They do. From smallest to biggest, Genesis says God created every living and moving thing. And by the way, if you're a Christian that calls yourself an evolutionist, and there are many, because most Christians think science has had the final word on this, and so whatever you make of Genesis, it has to comply with science's version of uh, evolution. You've got a problem because this says God created every living and moving thing. If you believe in evolution... God did not create every living and moving thing. He, he didn't even create the initial life form. They evolved on their own. He was not the direct creator of every living and moving thing, as Genesis says quite clearly he was. If you go to birds in the air, there's up to about 10,000 species of birds. And just a few traits of a few birds I thought were interesting. I love birds, by the way, but uh, most of this was new to me. Bar-tailed godwits. I'd never heard of bar-tail godwits. I, I don't even remember exactly. I think it's from Australia. They go up near the Arctic or something. Sorry, I didn't. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> These birds, though, they migrate 7,000 miles nonstop. They never land. For 7,000 miles, they migrate nonstop. Most of you have probably seen on nature shows or something the uh, African weaver finches. They not only weave a nest, but if you've seen them, it's hard to forget 
because they are marvels of engineering. These birds cooperatively and individually are, are making nests, individual nests for their clutch, but they're making them in tandem with their neighbors so that you get this apartment complex of nests that's as big as a house in these single trees, and every one of these nests has its own entrance, its vestibule, if you will, its little tunnel that they get into. But they're marvels of engineering. Africa also has the distinction of having the, the single most populous or numerous bird in the world is the red-billed quayla in Africa. And the numbers, the estimates are that this bird species alone has about a billion and a half birds of this kind of bird in Africa. And if you've seen, again, on the nature shows, when they flock, these flocks are in the hundreds of thousands. They're, you know, we see flocks here that would be thousands and they look huge. This makes them look small time. They're huge and immense flocks. Just on diversity of size, in the bird family, you go from the bee hummingbird. It's the smallest bird in the world. It weighs 1.8 grams. It weighs less than a tenth of an ounce. And it measures two inches long. Its wings can beat 80 times per second. That's faster than our electrical equipment, by the way, in the United States, cycles. It's faster than that, their wings can beat. And then from that, you go up to ostriches, which can weigh up to almost 300 pounds, run 40 miles an hour, stand nine feet tall, and live up to 75 years with wings that don't do a thing, you know, <laughs> except look pretty or impress females, perhaps. But from hummingbirds to ostriches, God says again, God created every living and moving thing. Every living and moving thing. And he told them to multiply and fill the earth. You get to day six, the first part at least of day six in verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, we would probably call this domesticated animals. Creatures that move along the ground would be bugs and lizards, reptiles. Wild animals would be non-domesticated type animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Let me emphasize again what this verse says. God made the wild animals. God made the livestock. God made all the creatures that move along the ground. It's quite specific. In this, in this arena of land animals, there's about 5,400 species of mammals, and there's over 8,200 species of reptiles. Most of these are lizards and snakes, almost 8,000 species alone. 23 species of crocodiles and, and over 300 species of turtles. But again, this incredible diversity within these animal forms on the earth. In the mammal category, the smallest animal is the pygmy shrew. It actually ties, it depends on how you me measure their mass or their weight. There's a little bat that's uh, the bumblebee bat is, and the pygmy shrew are about the same size. They're both about 2 grams in weight. So you go from that in mammals up to the African elephant, 27,000 pounds and over 13 feet at the shoulder, which, by the way, the woolly mammoth is estimated to only be slightly larger than, the African, than a large African elephant t today. So two ounces to 27,000 pounds, all within the mammal family. And then in reptiles, you go from the dwarf gecko, which is 16 millimeters long. You guys remember... Uh, Cigarette commercial helps me. 100 millimeters was a long cigarette, right? 
So this is less than the butt of the cigarette. That's the smallest reptile, the dwarf gecko, up to saltwater crocodile uh, on record almost 21 feet long and weighed over 4,000 pounds. So whether you're thinking about the sea, the air, the land, you've got this incredible diversity of life. And the text is quite specific in saying that God created every one of these, every individual life form that's here, the text says God put here. Where did life come from? How do you get something from nothing? God says he's the one that created something from nothing that it cannot happen otherwise. If you look in verse 22, this brings up a theme that's a big deal in the book of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible, and it is this. If you notice in verse 22, it says God blessed them. God blessed the animals. And by the way, it's the same phrase that it'll say later about man. God blessed them. When God blessed them, he gave them his favor, as it were, or his aid or his help. He told them to do this. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. When God blessed them, his blessing led to multiplication so that the sea animals would teem and fill the water so that the birds would reproduce and fill the land and the sky and the land animals would multiply to fill the earth. In other words, God's created those spaces and when he creates these animals, he blesses them specifically for them to reproduce to fill the area God designed them for. God wants to fill up the vast area he's created with life. I think this is interesting. Evolutionists see life as an accident of nature. That is, there's no specific reason why life should exist here at all other than random processes occurring over time. If you believe in uh, evolution, I want to say atheistic evolution, but if you believe in evolution at its core, you believe that something came from nothing and that life is an accident because there was no purpose behind life's creation or life's origin on the earth or in the universe, none at all. In God's economy, life was the goal of the creation. So when he blesses the animals, he's blessing them to fill the spaces he's created. You know, we look in space, we talked about this with stars last week. The space, as far as we can see, it's without any sign of life. And the earth is unique. And we said that God threw the stars out there to give light on the earth, to give signs and seasons for the earth. They're there for the benefit of the earth. But as far as we can see, there's no life out there. There's no sign of life out there. But specifically on the earth, it looks like when God says, I'm blessing these creatures, he's blessing them because he wants life to fill up all the spaces he's created for them here on the earth. In God's economy, life isn't an accident. It was the goal of creation. So God says, let the waters be filled with life, let the skies be filled with life, let the land be covered by life. From the smallest mite, just think of the swings here, to the largest dinosaur, from minnows to blue whales, from shrews to mastodons, from hummingbirds to ostriches, God says he's the one who put every one of those life forms here on the earth. And in all the complexity and the lovely creatures and the less than, ugly cre than, less than lovely creatures, the ones we might think are ugly, God says he put every one of them here on the earth. He's the author of life. Evolutionists will also tell you that life uh, 
life began through spon uh, uh, spontaneous generation. Uh, it, it happened in a moment. Uh, and the best guess is that something like lightning hit a slimy pool of sludge and the lightning went through amino acids and the amino acids became proteins and voila, you've got life. You know, if evolutionists look for an origin of life, this is the best that they can come up with. Lightning, sludge, amino acids, proteins, and we roll from there. You know, the problem with this is there's absolutely no evidence for it. There's no evidence whatsoever. And you know, on anything we're talking about here, if you read, uh, I was reading a little bit last night, uh, they'll, there are arguments evolutionists have to tell you why their theories are valid and why explanations for creation are wrong. But you know, you can talk all you want and you can reason in circles all day, but it doesn't change what you can verify. And this thought that life originated by spontaneous generation is, in my estimation, a fairy tale made up by people who do not, for one reason or another, want to believe in God or the implications if there is a God. So for them, the creation of life is spontaneous generation. God, of course, claims in, Gen in Genesis to be the cause of spontaneous generation. We wouldn't say that there was life that was spontaneous, but it had a cause. Michael Behe wrote a book almost 10 years ago called Darwin's Black Box. And uh, I'm curious, how many here have read it? It's, it's an old book now. It's almost 10 years old. Okay. Okay. I'm surprised. Uh, this was kind of the blockbuster. There were some other books written, uh, Philip Johnson. Uh, but this was a big one because it was written by a scientist. And it, it brought up issues that appeared uh, hard to figure out. Behe said this, uh, Within biological life systems, uh, whatever life form you're looking at, you know, it's made up of a variety of systems. And each system within itself uh, has a number of components that have to work together cooperatively. They all work together or that system, that component doesn't function. And he termed this concept irreducible complexity, this thought that there's a point beyond which you can't go any lower in the number or kind of components that work in a system for it to work, for it to function. His examples were mousetraps, bacteri bacterial flagellum, and the human eye. And just using mousetraps as the simplest example. He said if you t look at a mousetrap, it's very simple on one hand. But there's a number of parts, all of which have to be there. They have to not only be there, but they have to be there in a certain arrangement for this thing to work. If you take any single element away from the mousetrap, it will not work. It has no function. It's broken, period. It has no use. He carries this over into, into biology. His key example there is the bacterial flagellum. He uses this because it's a very, very, very simple life form. And yet he, he takes you through to show you that this flagellum has a, what amounts to a rotor like on a boat today. And it, and the rotor's comprised of RNA and DNA, sorry, but it's a little motor. And it's got all these working parts. If you take one piece of that thing away, it doesn't work. It couldn't survive. His point is, evolutionists, how can you explain irreducible complexity? Because evolution suggests that the change of life forms over time happens by a mutation. That is, you get a flaw in the genetic DNA. And so... The animal has some change. 
the, the problem with this, of course, is that almost all mutations are disastrous for an animal. And for this to work, for evolution to work, you'd have to have multiple mutations all at the same time, all producing single elements that work in harmony with every other mutation that's occurred at the same time. What do you think the chances of this are? That something came from nothing out of this kind of complexity. It's beyond reason to assume that this could be. Behe's title was not only catchy, but uh, Darwin's Black Box, uh, but it was a reminder that in Darwin's day, about 150 years ago, the cell was a black box, that it, it was this unknown quantity. We really didn't know. We didn't have electron microscopes and lab experiments, et cetera, to tell us what was in the cell. Things are different today. We know all kinds of things that are in the cell today. And, and one of the most important is the fact that every cell you've got has DNA. And the DNA is this, this strand of data that tells your cell and then systems what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And that DNA, it's not just molecules, it's not just chemistry, it's information. The DNA is a blueprint. So it's a map of information that tells your body what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. You know, if you like your hair color or you don't like your hair color, your DNA determined that. Your size, your shape, your looks, etc. That all came from a blueprint within the cells in your body. And here's the problem. How do you get information? Where does information come from? How did DNA develop? Do you see where he's going with this? It's not just matter that bonded together. It's not just molecules that had an attraction, a positive and a negative attraction, and so they hook up together. It's not that at all. It's that to an almost infinite level. Every cell in your body has encyclopedic information. Where did the information come from? It's knowledge. It's information. It's data. So it's not just stuff. It's just not molecules stuck together. It's information. Where did DNA come from? How did we get information? Evolutionists will tell you this is all by chance. I'm scratching my head thinking, you've got a tough cell. You've got a tough cell here. Um, another key phrase here is reproducing after its kind. In this opening chapter, reproducing after its kind. If you look in verse 11, when God made plants, He said there are plants and trees with seed according to their various kinds. Verse 21, see and living and moving things according to their kinds, winged birds according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. God created both plants and animals to reproduce what they were. They reproduce after their kind. You know, today in the laboratory and in farms, we, we do what's in our power to manipulate breeding or reproduction, and we kind of test the limits of what a particular species of animal or plant can do. But we never create a new plant. We never create a new animal. We find the limits. So you can breed dogs to get something as small as chihuahuas or as big as Great Danes, but at the end of the day, you've still got a dog. And you can engineer corn to get big heads of sweet corn or small drought-tolerant heads of field corn, but at the end of the day, you've still got corn. 
And you can get little cute, I think they're Jersey or Guernsey cows, the ones with the sad eyes, up to big Holsteins, you know, but at the end of the day, you've still got cows. That is, God says, and He built in, what a thing is is what it reproduces. A thing reproduces what it is. Evolution tells you that one thing produces something it was not. That dogs give rise to cats, so to speak. That one thing produces something it was not. God says that's not the way life works. That what a thing is is what it reproduces. It reproduces itself. One of the things evolutionists, those who hold evolution, often bring up is uh, when you look for evidence of evolution is a bacteria. You guys know that through the use of antibiotics over time, we find that some kinds of bacteria develop resistancy to antibiotics. And this is a, a big thing in our day. Uh, it has big repercussions. You know, if you're a, a patient in a hospital and you need to kill a bacteria inside, it's a big deal if an antibiotic works or not. But generally, that argument is brought up in what I think is a very misleading way. The thought is the bacteria has become a super bacteria. It has become, through evolutionary means, through mutation, it's become something bigger and better than it was, and so it can now combat that antibiotic. But that's not actually what happens. What happens is those mutations devolve the bacteria. It's less of what it was before. It's not more. It doesn't have more genetic or better genetic information. It has less. And the aspect of the bacteria that the antibiotic worked on before is no longer present, which is why the antibiotic doesn't work. But it's not because the bacteria evolved up. It devolved down. There's no evidence that mutations increase information. They lose it. The only evidence we have of evolution in this sense is devolution. That things are becoming less of what they were, not more. They're becoming weaker in that sense, not stronger. Let me digress as I wind down here on what is somewhat of a tangent. But um, Dogs produce dogs. Cats produce cats. They produce what they are. They reproduce what they are. And that means humans reproduce humans and of course that also means that sinful humans reproduce sinful humans uh, i'm fond of of uh, people but people reproduce people like themselves which mean fallen creatures you know originally we haven't got there yet we'll see soon though when god creates finishes the creation at the end of day six he looks back he says everything is good and he creates man in his image, and he says, and it's good. But then something happens later, of course. And man, in that sense, man devolves. Man loses his status, his good status, as this one created in the image of God, through sin. He becomes less of what he was intended to be, not more. And then he, he reproduces that fallen, devolved status in the creatures he reproduces, his children. Like produces like. Fallen humans reproduce fallen humans. Now, this is depressing at this level, but there's an upside, and it is this. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, this same thought, he trades on this thought in Genesis that like, produces like. The downside for us is that we reproduce people in our own image 
sinners. And by the way, later in Genesis, it will say, if you read the, the uh, genealogies, you see after a while that, that Adam's children weren't reproduced in God's image. They were reproduced in Adam's image. This is a, this is a key theological concept. But it also means that if you gain a spiritual rebirth, that the gospel is all about, of course, it means that you come from a new parent, and it means that you take on that new parent's likeness. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, starting at verse 45, he said, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. That's what we get from our forebears. They're made of dust. We're made of dust. Their parents were dust. Dust all the way back to Adam. The second man's from heaven. He's not earthly. He's from heaven. As was the earthly man, so also are those who are of the earth. That is, when we reproduce, we're reproducing someone just like us. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. If you've been born again through faith in Christ, you have a new likeness because you have a new parent and God has reproduced himself in you. And this is the the kicker. This is the encouraging note, verse 49. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Back in Genesis 1, God says each plant or animal reproduces what it is. Well, for us as sinners, this is a bad thing. But raised to the level of a new creation and a new birth through faith in Christ, the same principle means that you and I become like Christ. This is the upside of being reproduced after your kind. So I'm thrilled to know that God, my Father, created the heavens and the earth and every bit of life in them. But you know, He could do that. And if I wasn't born again in His image after His likeness, I'd still be in trouble. But through faith in Christ, anyone who's believed has a new parent, a new line. It doesn't go back to the earth. It doesn't devolve to Adam. It evolves, if you will, to heaven and to Christ. And elsewhere in the scripture, I think it was John that said, when we see him, we'll be like him. You know, we look at each other now, we're still clay jars. We still bear the image of our earthly parents. And, and sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that's less than good, isn't it? But the upside is that just as surely as we bear their image, when you trust in Christ, When you have that spiritual rebirth, it's a given. It's a principle in Genesis 1 that's true in 1 Corinthians 15 that God has reproduced himself in you through Christ and you'll bear his image. Like reproducing like. This is a good thing. When it comes to the question of can something come from nothing, the answer is no unless God's involved. And God says He's the one who gave spontaneous generation to life on earth. He claims credit for every form of life on this earth. If it's life and if it's on the earth, God says it came from His hand. Let me close with a hymn, lyrics from a hymn, uh, called Maker of Heaven and Earth. You probably know it better as a poem called All Things Bright and Beautiful. I'm going to read all the lyrics just because it covers all the bases. 
You can close your eyes if you want or think of all creatures great and small, the show or whatever you want. But this is what a Christian said about creation and the life forms in it. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, He made their glowing colors, He made their tiny wings. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. The purple-headed mountain, the rivers running by, the sunset and the morning that brightens up the sky, the cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden, He made them every one. The tall trees in the greenwood, the meadows where we play, the rushes by the water we gather every day. He gave us eyes to see them and lips that we might tell how great is God Almighty who has made all things well. Father, thanks that one day we will see you as you are and we will be transformed fully into the likeness and the image of your Son. Father, thanks that mortality will be swallowed up in immortality. Thanks that just as we bore the image of our earthly parents, Lord, through faith in Christ, we bear the image of your Son. And Lord, as lovely and as complex, from the big to the small, Lord, the closer we look, the more amazing we recognize this creation. Lord, thanks that better than this one that fades and is rolled up like a scroll or a garment, that the new heavens and the new earth will even more fully display your glory and we will more fully display your likeness. Father, help us to be those who trust you. And Lord, whether or not we understand all the ways you've worked to produce the world and the life in it, help us to trust your word above the word of men who are made of dust. In Jesus' name, amen.